So this morning I get to preach on or teach on 2 Samuel 22. And if you've looked at it at all, you'll know it's a psalm slash poem slash song. And I really got that one because I'm the most sensitive and emotional member of the staff. Um, you know, I'm really in touch with my feelings. And so to connect with heart to heart, that's why I got volunteered to do this. Maybe voluntold is a better way of saying it. David Scott, so he, David went to him and said, you got a choice. You can do whatever. You can do Psalm 22 or excuse me. Uh, first Samuel, Second Samuel 22, or you can do whatever you want. And David said, I'll do whatever I want. Let Jeremy do the other one. So that's what, uh, that's what we're going to look at. And again, if you look at this, it's almost identical to Psalm 18. So it's, it's very similar. And I want to give you a little bit of context as we get started with this, because I'm an old history teacher. I look out and I see some of my old students in, out here, and some of you are rolling your eyes and getting nervous right now because you think I'm going to teach history for a little while. And I am, just for a second. But when you look at the ancient world, a lot of times you'll see these kings, after they've done all these different things, they build monuments to themselves, right? They'll build, you know, if you look at the pyramids and you look at these other things in Egypt, you can go to Rome, you can go to Greece. In these places, if you were a good king, your goal was to make sure everybody a thousand years later knew you were a good king. And if you weren't, you lied about it and made something up anyway, but you wanted to take all the focus and put it on you. Right? That was the whole goal. At the end of your reign, you would look back and say, these are the places where I was really great and y'all should know about it. And so if David had written this passage here with that in mind, it would have been normal. It would have been just what everybody else did at that time. But instead... David takes a little different route. There's this German theologian, and I won't say his name because I can't pronounce it and y'all don't care. But his quote about, Dave, about this psalm, he said, David, excuse me, this passage, um, David's history could have been narrated as that of a great and powerful king. This chapter, however, is, is concerned that it should be understood as the action of a great and powerful God. Where most kings during this time period focused on themselves and said, look how great I am, David is ending his reign looking back, saying, this is how great God is. Here are all the places and all the times that he delivered me from something or somebody, as opposed to, here's a list of my battles that I won, or here's a list of my victories. David is pointing towards God. And so, regardless of when this was written, whether it's right after he becomes king or if it's the end of his life, David is still giving credit where credit belongs. He's giving credit to the Lord. And so... I'm going to go ahead and start, excuse me, we're going to start with uh, chapter 22, verses 1 through 4. David sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield, my horn of salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, and my savior. From violent men you save me. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise and I am saved from my enemies. <clears throat> so I think it's important to look at to start here is that David doesn't warm up. There's no kind of preparation period. He doesn't give you context like I just did. He just starts exploding with praise for God. And I'm reading this thinking, it seems like he's a guy trying to find the words. And so he just keeps listing out words and words and words of things of how great God is. He actually gives eight descriptive terms for God. And of the eight, you can see them up there on the screen, we're not going to go through each one, but of the eight, seven of them are in a military form, right? You can talk about a fortress, you can talk about a shield, a stronghold, uh, those type of things, a horn of my salvation, the horn would have represented a weapon. And so seven of the eight refer to 
some type of military context. But then we get to the eighth one, and he refers to God as his Savior. I thought this was interesting, so I started looking through to see how many times the word Savior is used in the Old Testament and found that this is the first time. No one's used this term of God anywhere in the Old Testament until right now, and it's only used 14 more times in the Old Testament after this. Most of those in the Psalms and most of those from David. So I thought it's interesting to see that David, as he's reflecting on his career as king, he explodes with praise, and then he finally, it seems like to me, he left it for last because he finally realized, you know what, God is my Savior. God is, God is, he saved me not just from evil men, but I think it's a prophetic voice in David pointing to the saving grace of God. I think he's looking at this and he's saying, this is, this is what's coming. It hasn't come yet, but I think it's this prophetic voice where he's saying, God is my Savior in these situations, but he's also my Savior and it's coming in the future. So as we look at this, there's only one thing that we can think that we can, that we can do in response to what God does for us. It's praise God. That's our only response to anything. Like Bo was saying there at the end, is like God's delivered us from something, and so we have to praise him. We don't have any choice. And I found myself as I'm reading through over the last five years that we've been doing First and Second Samuel, that I found myself going through thinking, thinking like this tons of emotions about David. Like at first it was like, oh, this guy is awesome. He's killed a lion. Now he's killing a giant. He's, he's pursuing the Lord. He's, he's, he's cutting off a robe. He's cutting off part of Saul's robe. And then he feels bad about it and he repents. And I'm like, this is what it looks like to be a man after God's own heart. Then he starts committing adultery and killing his friends, his mighty men. I'm thinking, now this is not the guy that I'm really excited about reading about. And then we find he's a terrible parent and all this other stuff's happening. And, and I mean, at some portions he looks like a coward and things like that. And I'm thinking to myself, all right, wait, what happened here to this guy? Where did where the switch flip where he goes from being this guy who is after God's own heart to being this guy who is willing to kill his best friend? And even then... Regardless of how I feel about David as a person reading through the scripture, we have to admire the fact that regardless of where he was, he praised God. He worshiped, he praised, he gave credit to the Lord. He quickly, when he commits adultery and kills Uriah, he quickly repents and turns back to the Lord and praises him. He doesn't dwell on the sinfulness of it, and he understands the intensity of praise. And when I think about intensity, being a coach, my thought process immediately goes back to when I was coaching or sports and things like that. And I think about a lot of times maybe the object of my praise gets moved around. Maybe it's focused on something other than the Lord. Actually, a lot of times it's that case. I had a friend of mine when I first became a Christian, single, where he, would, he was kind of discipling me. He's like, he, the best place to do that is at a football game. And so we used to travel to college football games all over the place. And he was a huge Georgia fan, so we went to every Georgia game. I went along with him. Some people shaking their, all the Auburn people are shaking their heads like this. Um, I would go to the games with him, and then we immediately, or he immediately turned into that Georgia fan that everybody hates, right? The obnoxious one that's loud, that screams at people, that talks about how great they are. And we stood for these football games from kickoff till the end. Like, we stood up just like this, and we acted like fools for four quarters. He did let me sit down at halftime. But other than that, 
we would stand up there and we were taunting the other fan. There was more than one occasion where we were leaving South Carolina where we had to get tickets in the South Carolina section and stand up the whole time and then lose. And then we walked out and we got pelted with abuses and things like that and beer and the other stuff as we were leaving because people were angry. But that's what we did. And I kind of caught on to it. I'm not a huge, I like football, but I'm a huge Kentucky basketball fan. And so I would invite him to my house and we'd watch basketball games. And the way, you've never watched one with me because I don't like for people to watch it with me. But the way I watch Kentucky basketball games is when they're on defense, I'm on defense. Like I'm playing, like their success completely depends on how active I am in my living room watching this game. And I am super intense. And so he used all of that to disciple me. And I finally... We, we got married. We kind of grew apart. At one point, I said, hey, won't you come and come check out this church that I started going to? So I used to go to Riverstone, and when we moved here with Stonebridge, I came here, and I invited him to Stonebridge. And back in those days, there was one service, and we kind of ended whenever we stopped. Like I, He said, how long is it going to last? I said, whenever they stop singing. I don't know. It's like it's going to stop at some point, but it might be noon or one. So I invited him to come, and we went through church, and I watched him, and it was kind of like he's a guy that discipled me a lot as, we were, as I was growing in the Lord. And he took me, or we went to lunch, and we started talking. I said, well, what do you think? He's like, I don't understand how y'all stand for four songs of worship. I'm like, wait a second, we just stood for four quarters of football, and you couldn't stand for four songs. And it actually, while funny, led to one of the deepest conversations I'd ever had with him. Our focus and our intensity on football and basketball games, it just overwhelmed us, right? We didn't care to act like a moron in front of the TV or these other places because it was all about the success of our team. Yet when I come to church and praise the Savior that David talks about here, I don't respond the same way. I'm reserved, sometimes even annoyed, that we sing so many songs or that the songs go for so long or that kind of stuff. And, and, and praise isn't just singing. There's a lot of different aspects of praise, but that's the most corporate way that we do it. And I find myself cheering for football and basketball teams and resting and watching other people cheer for Jesus when I come on Sunday. And what I think we can learn from this passage is that David's praise of the Lord is transformative to our own praise. Like David's done a lot worse things than I know most of you in the room than any of you, right? And he was able to let that go and step into the presence of the Lord and just praise him. And I feel like that's the example that he sets in the first four verses here. The rest of this psalm, the rest of this, psalm, the rest of this chapter is only explaining why he said the things he said in the first four, chapter, first four verses. The rest of this thing is telling you, this is why I praise Let's read verse 5. This is, this is a lot of fun right here. The waves of death swirled about me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed, overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God from his temple. He heard my voice. My cry came to his ears. I'll stop there just for a second. He just wrote four verses about how great God is, right? And then he goes into his life story. We just got David's testimony there in a few short verses, right? It says, the waves of death came over me. The torrent, what's the the word there? The, uh, the, The cords of the grave, the snares of death confronted me. 
And David's only response is, because he knew who God is, because he knew how powerful he is in praise, his only response next is to call out to the Lord. He reaches out to God. He says, God, I can't do this. The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the heavens shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coal blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on wings of the wind. He made darkness his canopy around him. The dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, bolts of lightning blazed forth. The Lord thunder, thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. That shot, He shot arrows and scattered the enemies. Bolts of lightnings and, lightning and routed them. The valley of the sea were exposed and the foundations of the earth laid bare. At the rebuke of the Lord, the blast of his breath from his nostrils. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from, powerful enemy, from my powerful enemy, from the foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in my day of disaster, but the Lord was, was my support. He brought me out in a spacious, spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. So David, long, flowery way of saying God saved him. Right? Here's the list. Here's the places where I, I, I feel like I'm under attack, and I called out to the Lord, and the Lord responded in a way that wiped all of that out. Right? He, he, each one of these... Waves of death peeling towards the ocean. Well, the, you know, he says the, the valleys of the oceans are laid bare. All these torrents of destruction, the cords of the graves, the snare of death. All of these things that David feels, God steps in and delivers him completely each and every time. Whether it's Goliath or whether it's Absalom, it doesn't matter. God stepped in and delivered him each and every time. And because of that, David wrote the first four verses. Because of that, David praises with all his soul every time he has the opportunity. He bears it open. He explodes with praise. The other thing that I think we can take from this, and one of the things that David Eldridge has emphasized multiple times as we study First and Second Samuel, is that when we pray, God responds. David cries out, God responded. And he responds in a very similar way that he did on Mount Sinai. When we look at that story in Exodus 19, we see Moses up on the mountain. And the way, Moses, the way God responds, so when Moses, he tells Moses, I'm going to come, my, my presence is going to come on this mountain. If you look at the description up there, it's very similar to what David says about how God saved him and delivered him. It's covered with smoke. It's thunder and lightning. It's fire. It's a blast of a trumpet. It's an earthquake. It's all of these things. And so David himself is equating the deliverance he's experienced in these, in, in these instances to the deliverance that the Israelites experienced by the time they reached Mount Sinai. He's saying there's no difference here. He's giving us the exact same comparison, right? This is the same thing. The same God that delivered the Israelites is delivering you, and that for the same reason he delivered the Israelites, he's delivering David. Verse 20, and he says that God delivered him because he delights in him. God delivered David... Because God delights in David. I thought that was interesting because see, it doesn't matter whether this was written before or after David commits all those heinous sins that we've read about because these are the words of the Lord. Look, God is speaking through him here saying, 
basically God is saying, I delight in David, and God knows what's coming, right? And so he doesn't care what's coming. He still delights in David. And I think David can utter those words completely because of his identity. He understands himself to be a child of God. So we're looking at David here, and he's operating in a different way. There's an intimacy that David has with God that we don't see in other places of the Old Testament. He acknowledges God. He's not, God is not this far-off power that you can't see his face like we see at Mount Sinai, but God is this open and welcoming father that David has an, David has an intimate relationship with. You, know, you, look at the, you look back through First and Second Samuel, who else would have gotten away with eating the bread of the temple? And who else would have gotten away with something? It's not because these are sinful things. It's because David knew God's heart. He knows parts of God's heart, I should say, not all. But he's a man after God's own heart. And as he pursues this, he understands God is not this God of wrath. But he's a God of love. And so he's bringing David in. He's giving him a level of intimacy. Not quite to the level that we'll see when Jesus comes. Not quite to the level that we get to experience. But definitely a different level that we see that anybody else in the Old Testament experiences. Our last section, verse 21. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to my cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not done evil by turning from God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from the decrees. I have been blameless before him and have kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. To the faithful you show yourself merciful, faithful. To the blameless you show yourself blameless. To the pure you show yourself pure, but to the crooked you show yourself shrewd. To the humble, you, <clears throat> you save the humble, but your eyes are on the proud to bring them low. You are the lamp, O Lord. The Lord turns my darkness into light. With the help, with your help, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. So know what we know about David. Anybody have a problem with that part where he said, the Lord, uh, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness? Nobody? Yeah. You just don't want to admit it. So I read that. It's like, the Lord dealt with, me to my right, dealt with me according to my righteousness. You killed people. You took your friend's wife. You, you, know, you, you didn't deal well with your kids. Like, I have a hard time taking righteousness and David and putting those two things together. Now, maybe prior you can see some elements of righteousness, but if he's going to commit these sins later, all of that stuff was in his heart beforehand anyway. And so I had a problem with this as I looked at it, and I talked to a few people. Some people were just angry that it's even written that way. Um, And so I, I thought about it and started looking into this a little bit deeper. And what I think here is that David's not, I don't think David is looking at us and saying, look at me, I'm perfect. I don't even think he's saying that, I have, that, I, that I'm sinless. I don't think any of those things. What I think that David is saying here is that though I, I messed up the details, I wholeheartedly pursued the Lord. When you look at it, he wholeheartedly. David never turned away from the, to the right or to the left. He constantly pursued the Lord. He messed up lots of details. But he also never turned away. He never went running the other direction saying, I'm done with this. I'm going this way. He repented and, he, and, and the Lord corrected him. It wasn't without consequence. But he knows his identity well enough to say, yes, I've messed up the details, but I wholeheartedly pursue you. And because of that, God calls him righteous. 
I think that's an easier way to live, and it's not one of those things of cheap grace, do what you want to, you can figure this out later. That's not... And do all the things that, that he wants to for David. So how does this relate? How does a psalm written a few thousand years ago mean anything to us here now? And when I first read this, that's the, that's, I was like, I don't know, just figure it out. Go up there and just not have anything prepared, let the Holy Spirit speak. And then I decided I better not do that because uh, sometimes I don't hear well. And so I need to make sure that I focus. And as I'm thinking about this, again, the first, there's, two, there's two things. And the first thing is we, is we praise the Lord. And that sounds cliche, that sounds old-fashioned. Say, even saying the word praise, people are, uh, you know, we don't do hymns, so we can't praise. We can. See, praising the Lord is a heart posture towards the Lord of acknowledging all the things that he's done for us and then giving him credit. And it can be in songs or it can be in other ways. Songs are the easiest. But I think God understands completely, excuse me, David understands completely that God delivered him and he's been delivered from a lot and so he can't help but to explode in praise. One of the problems I see with this is that when people tell their stories, it's, it's when people give their testimonies, we sit there and we think nobody ever wants to hear the testimony of saying, well, I made straight A's, I went to college, have a good job, I'm married with four kids, I have a comfortable house, I've always done the right thing. Yeah, I've sinned a couple times, maybe once. But most everything's been pretty good. And so we look at them and we're like, we discount their testimony. Or they discount their own testimony. And then the next guy comes up and says, I've been in jail, I've been in prison, I killed four people, uh, I've been in drugs and this thing. And God completely wrecked my life. And we're like, yeah, we want more of that, right? That's somebody who's been delivered from a lot. And so they know how to praise from a lot. And, and we end up discounting our own stories because we don't have the tragic story to pull on people's heartstrings. I used to tell kids my story, which is not that significant, but it's, it's not good. Uh, it's a good that I came to the Lord or I wouldn't be alive right now. But I used to tell kids my story when I was teaching school and I'd tell them my testimony and they're like, yeah, that's the testimony I want. I'm like, no, I'm telling you this because I don't want you to experience what I did. I want you to choose the Lord now so you can experience the abundant life that exists. And so sometimes we discount our own stories for people. I just want to remind you, Romans 3.23 says that we're all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. We all have a story to tell. We've all been saved from hell. There's no bigger deliverance than that. And you can tell all the other stories you want, but every single one of us have been delivered from eternity away from God. And that's a story worth telling. And so I want to encourage you to share your testimony. I want to encourage you to praise like people who've been delivered from hell. Go after That's what David understood that sometimes we miss. He praises someone who's been set free. And even those of you who are the good people, right? I never did anything wrong. If you look at Luke 1, 67 through 69, you see the song of Zechariah, John the Baptist's father. He says, <clears throat> filled with the Holy Spirit, he prophesies, Praise be the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeem them. He has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of the, of the servant David. A priest, right? This guy does all the right things. He's, the reason he's a priest is he lives this way. 
He lives a life that is, is as perfect as you can get. He follows the law. He knows all the rules, yet he understands that God needs to be praised because he's being saved. He's being saved from the destruction that comes from the law, and he's been delivered into a new freedom without guilt, without this weight, without this, this thing on him that's preventing him from experiencing the abundant life that Jesus is going to promise The other thing, the second thing from this passage is that God doesn't stop delivering us. I love going to talk to people and sharing the gospel. I love it. And I love it when when they come to faith. But I think one of the things that we forget, we go out and we share, we tell them the story, and then we pray that prayer, and then we say, well, good luck, have fun. And we push them on their way. You're in. I think that's the beginning. That's where the discipleship starts. That's where the movement starts. That's where people's hearts start changing. We want people to come into relationship. Then we have to keep pursuing them. God continually delivers us daily and he saves us daily. It's not a one-time action that starts and finishes. And that day that you said a prayer, that you were baptized or any of the other days that you mark as days of your salvation in your life, God continues to deliver in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. I think that passage right there personifies American Christianity a lot of times. We understand who Jesus is, but then we still carry around these burdens and these weights that we don't get to experience the, the abundant life that he promises us whether it's finances, whether it's a job, whether it's family, whatever it happens to be, sometimes I feel like I walk around with this backpack full of rocks on and I'm just holding it, trying to get through life. And Jesus is like, I've already taken care of that. If you just drop it, we can move on into something different. We can, be, we can, we can move on to what I've delivered you for instead of you sitting there wallowing in self-pity. Made me think of this movie. I'm not really a movie person. Some of you maybe ever heard of the movie uh, The Mission with Robert De Niro. Anybody? Nobody? Okay, sorry. Uh, I'm telling a story anyway. So, Robert De, it's, a, it's Robert De Niro's movie. It's, I, I like historical movies. It's the only one that I watch, only ones that I watch, really. So, Robert De Niro's in this movie, and he's this Spanish slave trader, and he's living in, the, in Argentina, and he's going out in the wilderness, and he's capturing these indigenous people, and he's selling them into slavery on a daily basis, and he's become extremely wealthy from it. Um, and he's got this fiance, and he comes back, and his fiance has left him for his brother. And so, in a duel, he kills his brother. He goes to court, and they say, "Well, it's a justified killing, so you don't have to go to prison, but you have to pay penance." And so, his penance is all the instruments of his job he has to put in this sack. You can see it up there, and then you tie, he has to tie this rope around his neck, and he has to carry that through the wilderness out to these native tribes. He's following. He's got to follow the priest out to their mission. He's not. Uh, he's, no, he's not out there to save souls. He's kind of scouting. But he has to carry this through the wilderness. And you watch the movie goes as he's going through the entire thing. He's struggling. And then finally they get to this, this uh, waterfall and he has to climb up. And he starts climbing up and the weight of the armor and the sword pulls him right back down and he starts over. Does it again. It just goes on for days and for weeks and he can't get up this waterfall. And finally one of the people that he's out there hunting, one of these indigenous tribe, tribal people come to him as he's climbing up and they take a knife and they cut the rope. And all that armor that defined who he was that was a burden and weary is let go and he makes it all the way to the top. 
And you'll see the experience, the freedom there that he experiences as he gets to the top. I think this is a, is a good visual to what it's like for us. See, he wasn't found guilty of a crime, but he still carried the weight of that sin around with him. The same for us. We've been absolved of the crime. We've been given forgiveness. We've been forgiven, yet we carry the weight of the guilt with us all the time. And all we got to do is cut the rope. We drop it at the feet of Jesus. He says, I've already paid for this. Why are you still holding on to it? Jesus is going to give us the authority. He gives us the power to accomplish what he's called us to do. See, the requirements Jesus has for us, they're no, no less strict than anybody else. Only difference is he says, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit so that you can actually do what I've asked you to do. He knows that we can't do it. He's going to provide us the Holy Spirit to do it for us. So he's like, come, I'll do all the work. Just come to me. We're in one of two places this morning. We're either living in this acknowledgement. We've dropped the weights. We've dropped the burdens. We know our identity is rooted in Christ. And so because of that, we have to praise. We have no other response to it than that. Or we're on the other side. Or we're carrying around a burden. We're carrying something around that we should have let go years ago that Jesus has already taken care of and we're refusing to drop it off. We're carrying it around with us. It's a reminder daily of the sins that we've committed and Jesus is saying, I want to set you free. Taking care of that. So this morning in ministry time, we're in one of those two camps. And I've gone back and forth on saying this, but... There's, there's, there's two ways, there's two things this morning. Either when these ministry teams come up here, we have the longest lines we've ever had, or we have the loudest building that we've ever had. It's either coming up here and dropping off weights, or it's praising Jesus in the loudest voice that we've ever done. So this morning I'm going to invite Bo back up. Ministry teams, if you'll come up. Respond however the Lord leads you. We'll pray for you for anything, anything at all. But if you're carrying around a burden this morning, bring it up here. They're not going to give you advice. They're not going to tell you what to do. They're just going to pray that you would just lay that down. They're just going to pray for God to free you. Whether it's a physical burden and you need healing, or whether it's some emotional wound that you've been carrying around for years, let them pray for you. Let them bring the Lord into this. Let the Holy Spirit heal you of that. And if you're saying, I got that, then let's praise Jesus this morning. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning thanking you and praising you. We come to you this morning exploding with praise because there are countless areas in our lives where you've delivered us. You've removed all these things. You've removed our sins as far as the east is from the west, Lord, and we want to acknowledge that, that your goodness and your greatness this morning is the only thing that has set us free, that we've done nothing of our own, Lord, that we would write a song this morning that's not about how great we are, but how great you are. Not about how good our life has been, but how great your life has been in us. And we want to respond that way in prayer, Jesus. But we also bring to your feet this morning things that you've already taken care of. Any burden that we're carrying, Lord, we just ask that you would remove it, that we'd be able to drop it off at your feet this morning, that you would cover us with your blood once more, that you would continually 
and constantly save us and deliver us. Let me give you a minute this morning. Just ask the Holy Spirit, highlight whatever it is that I'm holding on to. You may be sitting there thinking, life's good, life's great, and that's, uh, that's awesome. Ask Him to search you. What's the thing that I'm holding on to this morning that's, that's preventing me from living in the freedom that you've promised? Holy Spirit, reveal to us those things that are disconnecting us from you. Break down the walls, the burdens, Lord. We want to experience peace. We want to experience joy. Eliminate the weariness in our life, Jesus. God, we lay these burdens down. We ask in the name of Jesus that you would destroy these burdens in our lives and we would step into that abundant life that you've promised. It's in Jesus' name.